about the human relationship to death. Uh, you know, how we, how we think about death and feel about death and, and talk about death or don't talk about death. Um, you know, given... Oh, you, we, we largely, like, I, I think that now as a society, we largely don't talk about death. Yeah, that, that like um, it, feels, it feels like now we're in the era where we we just close our eyes. We live in this perpetual uh, state of us being just uh, you know uh, finding entertainment, finding fun. And if it, somebody dies, it's like, well, you know, let's move on. Let's move on onto new entertaining things. Or like you know, Eloys. Yeah, I mean, if if those the person who dies is not so close to us that it in some way has this massive devastating impact on our lives and and yeah but then you, you, you're not supposed to show that because if you go around to people and being all kind of unhappy and people is like yeah you know he's unhappy because you know he's whatever grandfather died then uh it's like people were like let's avoid him yeah sure because we don't we don't want to be confronted with that you know absolute <laughs> reality and inevitability of death i mean it's kind of ironic and many people have said this, but it's ironic that it is such a definite thing. I mean, whether it had to have been definite or whether it was selected for or whatever, you know, we, we know for sure that at the moment until, you know, the transhumanists get their act together, it's an inevitability. And it's, it's one of the few things that we, you know, we don't talk about or often when we do talk about it, we talk about ways in which it might be avoidable like in terms of and i don't mean in, in the trivial sense of you know not being hit by a car or, or or you know not you know eating a poisonous mushroom i mean in the sense of the afterlife or in the sense of the transhumanists you know to what extent is the the belief that death is just an engineering problem that we can solve just yet another way of trying to avoid acknowledging the inevitability of our own deaths it would be, you know, it would be very interesting if we can trace the uh, evolution of the idea of the attitude towards death. I don't think we can in principle because, you know, we can't really reconstruct history to that uh, yeah. extent. But it makes sense to me that the societies who lived in the uh, constant turmoil of, you know, um, <clears throat> like death experience and uh, all the kind of risks, right? You can be killed by a tiger, you can go and, yeah. and hunt a mammoth, and the mammoth will kill you, and then there are all the numerous diseases, and if you make it up to 40, you are, you know, doing really, really good, and then you will still die very, very soon. Yeah. So, and, you know, die constantly, so people just constantly die. And I feel that those societies, and the uh, my knowledge of the beliefs of those societies and their religious systems, yeah. it, uh, it kind of... A, puts the emphasis of being not complacent with death, but embracing the death, right? And yeah. um, <clears throat> like in shamans, you learn from your death. As long as you're, as long as you're alive, everything is possible, right? Yeah. So if you are being distressed, you basically, you know, ask yourself, am I dying? And if you're not dying, you're doing good. Yeah. So but that is, and that's the then main, you main. should not battle with death in a yeah. way that you obviously try to stay alive, you know, uh, to the highest of your capabilities. But you still, uh, like, embrace the idea of death. Yeah. And when the death comes, you know, death is basically not glorified, right? Mm. But death is, uh, you know, your highest achievement. Like, having good death is, mm. is really good. It's really, really important. Yeah. And death essentially your ally 
And a lot of yeah. those um, uh, tribes, you know, they have the idea that, I mean, basically, you know, we, we as a humanity have the idea of death as a rest, right? And a lot of um, afterlife will be somewhat reward for the uh, stuff that you've done yeah, in your life. life. But the primitive societies, they tend to have the idea that people who die, they become advisors. So, you know, the dead ones, they are just advisors to the, I mean, to the live ones. Yeah. So there is no, nothing bad happening with your death. More so that, you know, it will be rest. Like, you will be resting and you will be still, you know, you'll giving, be giving basically, thoughts, yeah. you know, maximizing your servitude of humanity. Sure. I mean, don't, but you, then, don't, you, think, yeah. don't you think that that's common to pretty much every contemplative tradition I mean, including a lot of, you know, ostensibly secular philosophers, you know, from, from ancient Greeks through to relatively modern philosophers, this idea... Yeah, that, but I think... Mm. Well, you can jump in if you want, but I don't, I don't see that, that idea as, as at all, you know, unique to shamanic cultures. It may yeah, have yeah, no, no, I'm not saying, I'm saying it's unique to shamanic. I'm saying it's plesiotypic. I'm saying it's the, you know, um, Maybe. beginning of the... Human, if you like, the way human deal with death. Well, maybe it's plesiotypic uh, as far as wisdom is hmm? concerned. Maybe it's plesiotypic as far as traditions yeah, of wisdom but are is, concerned. My, my point is that there is no strife towards averting death. But there is no even thought that you can become immortal. Sure. And uh, the when you have myths about people who become, you know, trying to become immortal, it's usually uh, painting those people as fools, yeah, right? Absolutely. And they never yeah. achieve that goal. Yeah. They like, you know, they try like, you know, Gilgamesh. They yeah. try to, yeah. you know, achieve that goal and they fail spectacularly totally. because this is not, you know, human. Humans are not to be immortal, and even thinking about it is foolish. And like it's wise to understand that you know you, you will, will die, die. Yeah, and not only wise, but it's kind of you know proper yeah. to make uh, your uh, yeah. peace with that. Yeah. So and, and it's I... not you know like once once we kind of start to live better, once we see that hey you know children don't have to die as much as they did, you know uh, we don't have to kill each other. Like the idea that life is valuable is not a. Um, uh, like default idea, where you can you can actually trace in religions how it arises. That you know Jews have it, uh, and but you know the Assyrians they don't have it. You know, and so sure. So I think the the idea that every life is valuable and that life is value, has intrinsic value and it's better to be alive than to be dead is somewhat novel idea. And it's uh, well, I mean it's obviously I mean obviously it's uh, you. Yeah. Want to be alive, yeah. I but think, yeah, I think you talking... don't strive for a mentality. You don't strive for continuity of that experience. Yeah, I think you're speaking until quite recently. I think you're speaking slightly across purposes there, because I think, you know, as I was trying to say, I think that the idea of of looking at your death, you know, accepting the inevitability of death, contemplating the inevitability of death, um, and you know, having like the concept of the good death, which is the um, the concept that you will you will die well if you have already come to terms before the moment of your dying with the fact that you will die, um, is really about living a good life. 
because once you have accepted the inevitability of death, you will live a lot better for exactly the reasons that you know you were you were attributing to to shamans there, and maybe it emerged there, but it's it's kind of a <coughs> characteristic trait of all systems of wisdom up to the, the the present day, and all you know philosophers who try to you know derive a um, a, a framework. Um, which is um, to enable people to live a good life. And of course, you know, Socrates' definition of philosophy um, or being a philosopher as living an examined life, they will all have to deal with the issue of death. And they basically, pretty much most of them agree that you have to accept the inevitability of death in order to be able to live a good life. So I think that's a really common thing. The yeah, value Yeah, of... but it, it is a common thing. But, you know, like nowadays, there is no such a thing as a good death. You know, like for the last, uh, you know, <clears throat> more and more so for the last thousand years, death is portrayed as something bad. You know, like even the personification of death is like scary. You know, you're, you don't see that in the, um, like a lot of prim primal religions. You know, yeah, death is... It's, you know, scary, but it's not bad. It's not evil, right? While in our mythology, death is almost necessarily evil. It's like, you know, I mean, it's evil, right? Sure. So there is no, like, no death can be good in our common mentality. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. I'm just extending what you're saying. Um, yeah. Which is that it's been a hallmark of wisdom for forever and including within the last thousand years. Um, many, many philosophers within the last thousand years will have will have talked about death and, and you know, the need to acknowledge the inevitability of death in order to live a good life. I see, yeah, I but see. then you have the you know, you have... I mean, obviously, you know, the idea of resurrection, you know, occur like, we existed before Christianity. But in Christianity, we, you know, philosophers are really big on the idea that you will, not only you will continue to live after death, but there is a way to live after death in, um, embodied, right? Continuing to be human with human traits, human form. For sure. And... Absolutely. And, but many... and that, I mean, I... I, like, basically, you know, I'm wondering whether our, uh, you know, current strive for immortality, our current, you know, like, Aubrey de Grey, whatever, uh, those guys, because, it's really, like, whether it's really Western, whether it's really, you know, uh, the idea of, like, we've combated, you know, we've um, won, against, like, against most of the diseases that, you know, were major. We won against uh, uh children, um, mortality. We won against many things. And we're now living a really safe and good life. And now we have that, you know, idea that is ingrained into our society that you can live forever, that you can be resurrected after death, that you can become immortal, you know, once the Christ comes and brings everybody back to life. And now we have that idea mutated into that strife for embodied immortality. Absolutely. I mean, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, that's that's how I introduced the, the, the topic. Um, and I absolutely agree that the we are more able to ignore death and not accept its inevitability because 
it's less frequent. It's less in our face all the time. You know, I think that's inarguable. So, so I completely, completely agree with that. Um, so it's, but how does it, like, you know, don't you think that there is something unwise about it? Don't yes. you think that there is something, I mean, I've already not, said that. In, not improper, but you know, somewhat not wise. Yeah. I've already said that, you know, it's, it's always been a hallmark of wisdom to, yeah, you know, you said, you said that it's been a hallmark of, you know, like I agree with that. And this is, you know, a hallmark of my own, you know, idea of what wisdom is, is to accept your own, like, you know, the fact that you will die. But don't you think that, you know, like researching, you know, and trying to achieve that immortality and actively wanting to achieve that immortality? Because if you don't want, you won't research it properly, right? If you're like, yeah, I'll we'll die, whatever. Yeah. You don't make, you know, a huge progress in research and that because you need to really want to live forever in order to make the most out of your endeavor. Sure. So don't you think it is somewhat unwise? To do that research, I I don't know if there's a, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question because I think you were speculating about various um, evolutionary scenarios involving the selection for death at the beginning of the you know of our discussion. If you want to come to any kind of of answer, if you want to shed any light on that kind of question, then you're going to have to do the kind of research that people like. We just use him as our as our um, you know whipping boy or whatever. Um, people like Aubrey de Grey are doing. So I asked the question, and I mean we've I've got your answer clearly, as you know whether or not that kind of research was motivated. You know was just again part of the fantasy of of immortality. And yes, I think that that has always been. You know you referenced Gilgamesh. Um, it has always been characterized as unwise to seek immortality. But if what you were talking about at the beginning is halfway true, then it's it's an open question as to whether death is, you know, genuinely inevitable or can be treated as an engineering problem. And so given that that's an open question, on you know on some level you can't bl- not on some level i mean you can't blame a curious scientist who's in search of of knowledge about one of the most important things if not the most important thing um in 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 life which is death you can't really say that it's unwise for people to seek knowledge about that even though it's a hallmark of wisdom to accept your own death so you could actually investigate that question whilst also being, you know, resolved with <laughs> to the fact that you are going to die, maybe. Maybe you can't. I don't know. I think that's that's also a difficult question to 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 answer. I think I think it would some sort of, you know, schizophrenia. It will require you some sort of having I mean people do that in science all the time, you know. People say I don't be yeah, I believe, you know, in creation and then I do evolutionary discoveries, sure, right? People yeah. do that all the time. Yeah. But it will <laughs> I think it will require some, you know, honest uh, splintering of yourself in which, you know, by in daily life, you're like, yeah, I make peace with my death and I'm not afraid of death. And, you know, I, when it happens, I will kind of welcome it if I can't, you know, prevent it. Uh, and then when you are uh, doing your research on the immortality, you're like, yeah, let's bring immortality. Let's make humans immortal. You know, you have this drive that propels your work and so on. Like, hmm... 
I don't think that you being as a unified conscious consciousness can do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the fascinating question <coughs> is uh, to what extent deep-seated fantasies, um, you know, about things, about death, actually. I can, there's another example, which I'll, I'll bring up in a second, but to what extent deep-seated fantasies or, uh, I don't know, just ideas that have been extremely influential um, throughout human evolution or cultural evolution um, motivate a, a degree of, of research or, you know, the, the desire for a scientific validation of what's kind of, you know, again, one of these deep-seated fantasies or almost like default beliefs. You know, it's kind of the default belief that you want to survive. And that would have been the same in, in you know, all periods of, of, of human evolution. There's always going to be, as it is in, for all animals, there's always going to be a real impulse towards surviving. So developing this wisdom, and again, you've attributed it to these um, shamans. Is it, is it, hold, hold on, I'll, I'll actually interrupt you here. Is it so? You've been because, you know, when you are old, <clears throat> when you are, like, you know, speaking with a lot of old people, they want to die, you know? Yeah, a lot of them. That's a non sequitur. Like, yeah. you know, I, I mean, this is, this is obviously you know, a, diff a different question, whether they want to die because they are no longer can function the way they want to function, yeah. or they no longer feel the way they want to feel. Or they're tired. Right? They just want to be done with suffering, you know? Yes, but maybe, just maybe, there is, you know, kind of a, some evolutionary um, what a force that makes you feel so, you know? You kind of, like, it's not so much that you are, uh, you feel that because you are not functioning. It's more like you feel that because, you know, your, you know, your hormones function that way. You just made feel that way. And because the reality of death is just around the corner, you know, and it's 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 harder and harder to deny it at that point. But yeah, that was a non sequitur, man. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, healthy people in their prime um, or healthy animals who are still potentially of reproductive age or, you know, want to help the next generation, all the things we've been talking about. There is a strong impulse towards survival, which you can observe anywhere when, you know, you look at human behavior or the behavior of any animals or organisms, you know, single-celled organisms um, as well have a desire, in inverted commas, to survive. So I think that the idea of accepting death, accepting the reality of death, not denying it, of actually confronting that as a reality and then being able to live a better life because you know that whatever suffering you're having, for example, in the moment, um, you're still alive. Uh, I do think that that is, um, you know, something that people would have had to come to. It's a, it's a way of rationalising um, and again, confronting the reality of death. So I don't think that is the the normal basic state of human existence. I think again, it's a characteristic of systems of wisdom, and kind of by definition, people have to develop and become wise. You know, they have to learn yeah. to deal with things. Um, but, yeah, man. But you have, you know, you humans uh, that you know humans uh, were living in the same pretty much the same conditions for almost 100,000 years sure. like 90% of time human were in existence they lived in the same conditions of like somewhat hunter gatherers sure. and having somewhat the same mortality and somewhat the same inventions so of course the you know the 
primitive beliefs and primitive philosophy that I was referencing, it came as, you know, an evolution of, uh, you know, systems of thoughts during that time. Like, we have that is the result of, you know, thousands and thousands of years of human processing and thinking that and coming, you know, uh, in terms with that reality. Like, exactly. that's obviously true. Yeah. It's not that, you know, they just came into being and then that's what that was the way they felt about it. Yep. It's more like, you know, they evolved that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But I feel that, you know, the, like the way we have now is, you know, the kind of a, not even like, not, it's not regression, it's not something, but it's, you know, it's the new way of thinking about those stuff. Sure, sure. So I'm not... It's more like we developed that sense of wisdom, but then the conditions changed. We, uh, we don't see depth that, you know, much, much anymore. Yeah, so and now we have the thinking that we can maybe, you know, avert it altogether. Well, at least we can close our eyes to it. Yes. You know, like the fact that there are so many tangential, somewhat evidence that, you know, we like we, we don't like, you know, old people. We don't like the idea of being old. You know, all our mainstream art is not about old people. It's about being fit and young. Yes. So, um, yeah, that's that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, like, like, I'm not entirely sure. You know, it's not that I have some coherent points about that. It's more like it's feeling, right? And that sure. feeling is that we lost that wisdom. We, as a Western mm, civilization, yeah. as a Western society, we lost the wisdom that yeah. we previously possessed. That's just, you know, nostalgia for the golden age and all that kind of stuff. I mean, let, let me actually respond before, yeah. before you Probably, jump. But, I mean, come hey man, on. Come on, man. <laughs> um, give me a second to, to address what, what you are saying. Um, you have no idea, we have no idea whether that degree of wisdom... Um, the thing that we're both agreeing is wisdom. I mean, we're agreeing about everything, but or almost everything. There's no way of knowing whether that was ever a dominant view that most people held or whether that was just what the most wise people um, in those societies held, um, the position that they, the viewpoint that they held and that they tried to get other people to believe. And maybe those people even said that they believed it, but maybe they didn't really. So you've got no way of knowing whether the situation was profoundly different in the sense that all members of this tribe or all humans you know, were wise in this way. There are many, many, many people alive today who would completely agree, like hundreds of thousands, if not, well, um, certainly millions, I would say, many millions, who would agree that, you know, being cognizant of the fact that you are going to die, accepting your death, etc., allows you to live a better life, and that that is a sign of wisdom. So you can't, you don't know what the relative percentages have been at any given time. And therefore, you can't characterize it in this sense that, oh, that was the golden age, and now we've lost that idea. I mean, what's the, the whole concept of mainstream and, and the, the amount of information that's out there now and flying around, like it's a totally novel situation in that sense. So for sure, we're continually exposed to all the kinds of things that you're talking about, which I'm arguing come from you know, a very, very basic um, desire, which is you know, profoundly pre-human, to just survive and to, to not die. You know, we all want to live. Of course, that's going to be the dominant idea. I mean, I think you are making lots of, of you know, completely reasonable points as well. Um, definitely the fact that we, we now can prolong life 
We can put it off. We don't have to even think about being old for such a long period of time. You know, our, our youth is so massively extended. Yeah, I think that all has a, a big effect. But again, I don't think you can quantify the relative percentage of the society at any given time that has this particular wisdom. What would be revealing would be if the people who were, you know, the, the deepest thinkers of the era, um, like of the modern era, were in general saying that, oh, you know, death, you know, were, were um, putting forward what you're characterizing as the main, and which is the mainstream point of view, but they aren't. You know, there are many, many traditions around today um, and many, many, you know, quote unquote, wise people who would completely agree with both you and I that you need to accept the reality of death in order to live a good life. But I was trying to actually mine a different thing when you jumped in before, which was saying, you know, it's interesting to what extent these really, you know, deep, um, motivating fantasies, if you want, about death, but also about many other things um, that, have, that have always probably um, been a big part of, of people's life, like the desire to live forever. Uh, and, you know, clearly the Epic of Gilgamesh um, indicates that that idea even though it's characterized as foolish in that myth, but that idea has been around for a really long time. There have always been people who didn't want to die. So to what extent these deeply held uh, fantasies um, motivate various current lines of research, or to what extent we almost use science to justify them? And you know, I really like to think about this in terms of another phenomenon that's very related to death and worth discussing in any um, conversation about death, which is end-of-the-world mythology, um, you know, apocalyptic mythology. And right now we have a whole bunch of, of, of apocalyptic scenarios, um, you know, the, and the most scientifically validated of them are climate change, overpopulation, and AI, right? Uh -huh. And I've always been interested in the extent, well, <laughs> I've always been interested, I guess, in pointing out, as many other people have been, that every era of humanity, every age has had its, um, you know, eschatology, you know, its, its end of the world mythology. And we just happen to be the first era to have scientifically validated end of the world mythology. But you know, does that make it any more real than it ever has been? And does that mean our motivations for, you know, the reason we're so fascinated by it um, are any different than they've always been? People have always been obsessed with this. People would like to claim that we're obsessed with it now because science is telling us it's going to happen. But is that really true? Or are we just obsessed with it for the same reasons we've always been obsessed with it? And one of the arguments as to why people are so obsessed with end-of-the-world mythology is because that they can't accept their own personal death. They kind of can't imagine a world going on in which they don't exist. So they have to think about the whole world ending. Because if everybody dies, it's not so bad that I die. Because, you know, at least the world doesn't go on without me after I'm gone. I mean, it can be, can be that. I mean, I'll, first I'll say that I don't think it makes it any anyhow different because 
you know, like now we have the dominant way of knowing things through science. Yeah. Previously, we had the dominant way of knowing things through religion, before yeah. that through mythology. So it doesn't matter which is the way that we, you know, what is the way of us to know things. Yeah. It matters whether the um, particular end-of-the-world scenario is validated by that way of knowing things, by the dominant way of knowing things. Yeah, that's sort of so what I'm getting it at. Doesn't, yeah. It doesn't make it anyhow different from that perspective. But also, like, maybe, I mean, it, it, it can be that, you know, it's an interesting idea that, you know, that the uh, need to have everybody die stems from, you know, the necessity of our own death. But, I mean, maybe, <clears throat> but um, from my uh, perspective, it, would, it just makes more sense that our collective uh, unconscious is plagued by the scenarios of end of the world because we as humanity have survived a couple. Like, you know, like even in our, you know, history as homo sapiens we yeah. had several right sure. we had that huge huge explosion of volcanoes 70,000 years ago that sure. wiped out like you know whatever 90 percent of yeah, humans yeah, yeah. we had you know those like the massive floods we yeah. had the uh you know ice age coming and ice age going like there were quite a few uh events that saw the you know entire yeah, community sure. like just dying yeah. off yeah so it just, it just, maybe you know, we just kind of feel like we're due for some, you know, yeah. because we've had a lot, and it's like, well, maybe you know, it's coming, it's coming, right? Yeah, it's kind of that. I mean, you made the, you made the very important point that that's um, unconscious because a lot of people don't really know that those sorts of things have happened. And, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, the flood, that's just some, you know, Bible, that's some biblical nonsense, uh, and they don't know about, um, you know, other bottleneckings. And of course, you know, if you, if you want to get really crazy with the idea of the unconscious, you know, um, we, we know that mass extinction has been a big part of, of our evolutionary history that goes back, you know, three and a half billion years um, to our, you know, most distant ancestors of the first life. So for sure that I, I imagine it's probably a bit of a combination of, of both of these things. But if you if you think rationally about the that whole you know all the bottlenecking that has happened, what's you know a conclusion that you can come to is that we survived. Um, in fact, our ancestors survived every single one of the bottlenecks that have come that have happened thus far. Yeah. And thus, none of them was in fact the end of the world. Um, so the idea that humans are going to go extinct. Uh, which is which is really a you know a big part of I think the the attraction and fascination for a lot of people of these end of the world you know of you know a genuine apocalypse if if ten percent of the population survives that it's not exactly the apocalypse is it um, yeah you know it's just a, it's just a really really bad thing um, so so I think those can be slightly teased apart I mean I think I think they're both you know rolled in together. In the way this this um we're so obsessed with with this idea, but and of course I completely agree with you that it doesn't make it any different that um you know these are now scientifically validated. It just gives us a kind of an even more of an you know we're now in this you know so enlightened and so rational age you know this the age of the triumph of rationalism as as many people believe it to be 
Um, yeah, well, but some a lot of people believe it to be the edge of you know quite the obvious. Of, of course, but it's just it's just an interesting, and it's exactly what you would expect that we find very rational way, quote unquote rational. Well, if they're supported by science, then they must be rational. We find ways of still indulging in exactly the same kind of mythological thinking that people have always indulged in, like end of the world, like immortality, etc. Um, we just now have a slightly different justification. The myth hasn't changed, but we've rationalized it in a different way. So, yeah. You know, I think that's... A... Uh, yeah, like, that, that's, that's quite interesting. It is, it is quite interesting indeed. Uh, but <clears throat> it doesn't, like, you know, the fact that our survivors, uh, the, the fact that our ancestors survived all the previous uh, bottlenecks, that makes it even more... Uh, legitimate for us to fear that there would there would be some that we won't survive because i mean this is essentially how fear works right like the ones that aren't afraid they don't survive you hear me yeah are you with me i'm completely with you yeah yeah Yeah. so the ones the ones that are you know they're not the ones that aren't afraid they don't survive so the ones that are afraid of big cats you know they yeah look at big cats they study big cats and they you know they become better at avoiding big cats and they still are afraid of big cats and so the ones that are you know afraid of volcano eruption they you know try to avoid the volcano eruption i guess so and also there is something at play that you know how for how long can you hold your luck so you've been yeah. lucky the first time the second time the third time yeah. right but more and more so you, know, you become yeah. kind of afraid is it is sure. this time the time that you yeah. know i yeah. will become unlucky so I think, you know, the more we survive, the more we will be afraid that we will die. So basically, the more we leave, the more we'll be afraid of death. Yeah. Both uh, on individual and the yeah, collective yeah. Uh, plane. Yeah, no, I think that there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and, you know, it becomes very interesting when you think about fear in an evolutionary context in, in the way you've sort of just framed it, because... We know that a bit of fear... Well, what we know is we know that awareness of threats is very important for survival. And we know that fear is a marker that is... You know, it's like pain in some sense. It's like, this is a thing you should pay attention to. Um, Mm -hmm. We also know that when, you know, fear becomes self-perpetuating, so fear starts to feed on itself and then you get, you know, really heightened levels of fear, that, that that must surely be selected against because when you are terrified, um, you know, that's kind of like a malfunction, you know, rabbit in the headlights kind of thing or, um, you know, kind of a malfunction of the fear response in which, you know, a rabbit that freezes in the open, you know, it might be very easy for a fox to catch. Um, mm mm-hmm. And, you know, similarly for, for humans, we know that there are certain levels of fear that once you, you achieve them, once you reach them, you're basically completely non-functional. And then your, your death is assured at that point. So, yeah, there's the right level of fear is, uh, is, is what we require. Yeah, but it's, it, 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 it doesn't have to be fear necessarily. I mean, as you said, it can, it can be just awareness, yeah. you know. You are aware of the ways the problem can uh, yeah. happen. Absolutely. You're aware of yeah. the threats. Yeah. And so you are even more aware of the threats once you know you had a bottleneck for you know the survival. Because those who were not aware of the sure. threats, they were not likely to survive. Absolutely. And you know, at, at the point now, we're so, so aware of the threats that we perceive, like, you know, over... Or estimate uh, threats. You know, we yeah. see this 
you know, like, you know, Malthus, you know, we're saying yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you know, there will be so many humans that there will be no place for humans, kind of, sure, right? Sure. And so he was right in some way, but he was also overblowing the, the, the effect figures, of overpopulation. The figures have yeah. always been way off in, in, in any you yeah. know, estimation there, because we're now well past any threshold of, you know, of previous generations um, of estimation of carrying capacity after which there would be massive, you know, dying off. And that, and that hasn't happened. As yeah. A result. yeah. 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 So, so, so you know, we, we, we like, we see this possibility for, you know, humanity yeah. to, uh, and to end. And so we're like, this is the way it will end. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And because this is our way to avert it. This is yeah, our absolutely. way to come in terms with it. This yeah. is our way to be like, to mobilize our forces and to do something about it, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's very, very true. And so I think that, you know, whether or not you believe it's likely that, uh, you know, some sort of general artificial intelligence would be, you know, likely to turn on humans and to, and to wipe them out for any number of, of, of reasons, or whether or not you believe that climate change could wipe humans out, um, that the, the kind of mythological thinking that suggests that it could or even that there's a high probability that it will absolutely means that we pay the requisite amount of attention to those quote-unquote existential threats and then exactly as you've said we are better equipped to try and avert them because we we study the issue and we work out ways of um of you know getting through it so yeah no yeah. i completely i completely agree with that Absolutely, and there's obviously you no know, evolutionary reasons for us to pay more attention to the uh, you know bad stuff that can happen than to the good stuff that can happen. So you know that's why we don't have that much fiction that will be you know without conflict, that will sure. be without you know threat, without something menacing, yeah. and that's why we like fiction that will be like you know all humankind will end like this, right? So you know, starting from like Lord of the Rings and up to whatever everything, right? Yeah. So we you also could have this existential threat to humanity, sure, and sure. you know, like save the world kind of you know phenomena, like hero who saves the world, you know. Like we, yeah, we also believe that captures our attention. Yeah, we also yeah. believe that it's not possible to have you know the good life to really enjoy things and to really appreciate them if we don't have to triumph over adversity. And again, that's encapsulated in the wisdom that acknowledgement of the inevitability of death enables you to live a good life. And so that's, you know, a lot of stories are structured that way because, you know, you can't get something for nothing. Um, you can't get freedom for free. I'll just quote Rush. Um, but like the good things in life have to be strived for. Otherwise, even when you have them, you will not value them. And there's obviously a lot of truth to that. Yeah. There is a lot of truth to that, but it's interesting how, you know, what evolutionary forces brought us to uh, to be like that, you know? Because you don't necessarily have to be like that as the biological system. But isn't it, but isn't because, it obvious? You know, all that we got, we got through, you know, suffering and through, you know, strive and through yeah. attempt to get it. Uh, well, we, we got it through not dying. 
We got it through yeah. evading all of the potential threats to our own existence. I mean, there's the whole yeah. theme of the discussion. We got it through struggle, struggle up to the yeah. point that we, we managed to get our genes into the next generation. I mean, the world has always been, of course, extremely hostile. Um, you know, life yeah, in a state yeah, of but nature. It, but it makes sense, you know, that uh, like because we struggle to get everything, we have this idea that you have to struggle yeah. in order to get something. Absolutely. Because yeah. those who didn't struggle, who didn't, you know, try to uh, do more than they could, they didn't survive. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. nowadays it's like the only way to go. You, I mean, like, I mean, nowadays it's kind of somewhat different, right? But in the, you know, uh, I would say peak of Western civilization, it was the dominant mentality that yeah. without struggle, there is nothing like no pain, no gain, right? Yeah, I actually still think that that's a pretty dominant narrative. And I think that there are a lot of people who are explaining the, the current malaise that is infecting Western society uh, in, in exactly those terms. They're basically saying that we don't have it bad enough. Things are too easy. Um, everything is taken care of for us. And we have a, you know, a fundamental need to experience, to triumph over adversity. Um, and, you know, we, we basically can't um, understand ourselves. We can't appreciate, um, you know, what it is to be alive and what it is to be ha and what it is to have good things if we don't understand that, you know, and through personal experience, if we don't actually struggle. And of course, we will induce struggle in ourselves yes. um, if we don't have, you know, struggle from outside. So we develop all these mental health issues which come from, you know, obsessive, you know, they come from self-obsession in a lot of cases because we basically have a quota for suffering that needs to be filled in some sense um, in order for us to, to really enjoy ourselves. And to yeah, yeah, but we have less and less, you know, suffering in our life, less and less struggle. I mean, not in subjective terms, but in objective terms. That's what I'm saying. Because in subjective yeah. terms, you know, it will be, become all normalized. And, you know, you will have the same amount of response nowadays to, you know, the car keys that you've lost Precisely. than you previously had to your thumb being cut off. Yeah. So yeah. it's just like subjectively, we'll be all the same. But objectively, we're becoming, you know, we, have, we suffer less and less so. So yeah. I imagine that, you know, it, there will be a, there is actually a selection pressure for people who can live happily without much suffering, you know, yeah. that they will be doing better, they will be achieving more, you know, yeah. and so it kind of a, like people who say that we have to necessarily suffer, they don't acknowledge the fact that we shape the way we will be. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so we, we, if we choose that this is the way we want to be, we can make it happen. Not now, obviously, but you know, within generations, so it I, can be just like Eloy's, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's um it's more abstract, really, than the story about the necessity of of, of struggle makes it out to be, because that's quite concrete. That's saying that you need to go through, you need to triumph over adversity, you need to experience struggle in order to really appreciate things. And I think, you know, I think there's truth to that, but I think it, there's truth that comes from something slightly more abstract, which is that in order to really enjoy things, you need to have your attention captured by things in the world outside you. I mean, you know, this is a bit of a, a, bit of a hobby horse of mine. Um, but I think that struggle... And, you know, things coming at you, dangerous things, whatever they might be, 
um, challenge, basically. Yeah. Anything that's extremely challenging, and particularly something that's actually threatening your survival, is really going to capture your attention. So, I mean, you can you can look at it from you know learning a new skill or or you know sitting a very difficult exam. And we know that if you're not really paying attention when you're engaging with that kind of stuff, you're never going to get any good at that new skill, or you're going to fail that exam. And then if you if you look at you know things that come at you from outside that are actually threatening your life, if you're not paying attention in that scenario, you're going to die. And because yeah. that, that has shaped so much of the evolution, I guess, of our nervous systems, if you want, it shaped the evolution of our consciousness, you better have your attention directed outwards for the majority of the time because things that want to kill you, um, you know, whether they are animate or inanimate, things that can kill you, risks are coming at you from outside. So pay attention. So I think that the, the more abstract principle is just the need that we have to pay attention to stuff, to have our attention captured. And it so happens, again, because of our evolutionary history, that being really challenged is one of the best ways to have your attention captured. Yeah. But in like, you know, those like the people who say that we need to the struggle in order to, you know, have uh, fulfilled lives, to live fulfilled lives, they are saying that, you know, you should not fight your nature. Your nature is so, your nature is whatever, predetermined that, you know, we are survivalists who struggle. Therefore, in order to become fully yourself, you need to struggle. Well, I would say that there is a way to change the way you are. You know, there is, you just, you just like, whatever through meditation for the sake of argument but that's you learn to pay more attention to yeah. things that are not that challenging but that's and not then, easy you know, suddenly you leave fulfilled <laughs> life without any struggle yeah but becoming a a you know really like ad, ad, you, can, you can you can either you know play by the rules that are ingrained within you which is if there is something challenging to your existence you pay attention to that therefore you need to find something that is challenging your existence in order to feel you know motivated but then you can just change what the things that, you know, grabs your attention. You can, you know, yeah. off your attention. You can well, change the way you attend to things. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. But I think that solving problems of some kind or another turns out to be one of the best ways of having your attention captured. And if you use the example of meditation, you know, meditation is specifically training your attention so that, you know, it's capturing your attention with the banal in some sense, right? So the substrate of your attention doesn't matter because you've trained your attention mm -hmm. to such a fine degree. But isn't it interesting that training your attention to that fine degree is extremely challenging to do. And that's why, you know, many, many people find meditation very, very difficult. And it's, you know, universally acknowledged that to become a master, um, to be able to, you know, maintain that integrity of attention, um, despite whatever's going on in the world. So being really neutral to substrate in some sense takes many, many years of serious study. So to some extent, you know, David Deutsch, I'm just going to quote him, so I have to credit him, but his, his view is, we are happy to the extent that we are solving problems. And I actually think that that kind of captures it. 
and you know he said that in a conversation i've told you about this before but he said that in a conversation with with sam harris where you know and then sam started talking about meditation you know he, he said oh but you know you can you can meditate and then you don't have to solve any problems and deutsch said well i don't know anything about meditation but um it seems to me like if you do that that the problem solving is still going on in the background and i think that that is exactly right because i think again that you are in, in, it's increasing this i keep going to these same um terms that i like to use and I, I would like to break out of that actually but you are basically defragging um so the kind of problem solving that you're doing is at the most abstract which is that you are instead of having all this fragmented information processing going on in your you know metaphorically speaking in your conscious and unconscious workspaces you are defragging that and meaning that you are therefore very equipped to again direct your attention outwards and solve other problems it turns out that those problems are now much easier to solve and they don't even seem like massive challenges anymore but it can be very joyful to then go on and solve them especially if they were things that had challenged you in the past and you couldn't do them so in some way that concept of challenge solving a problem is you know another way of talking about you know triumphing over adversity or or um you know challenging yourself um it does seem that no matter how you look at it it's in some sense going to reduce to well i think it reduces to having your attention captured and i think having your attention captured is is almost kind of fundamentally about problem solving because that's what our attention was designed for it was designed to solve problems so there's a degree i mean i completely agree with you you can change the terms of the problem solving so it's not that you have to be you know you have to have people or animals or whatever trying to kill you you can change the terms it could be that you're becoming a chess master or it could be you know or whatever it might be doing physics or pure mathematics or learning a musical instrument or anything you've changed the terms of the problem but nonetheless you are still engaging in attention capturing problem solving and that is essentially the route to being happy in some sense yeah i mean if you phrase it like this then obviously everything will fall into this you know like even the um, enlightened yogi yeah. who is sitting in star staring at <laughs> the nail in the wall is basically essentially challenging himself to continue doing so and you know he's somewhat aware that previously he was able to do it for two days and now he's trying to do it for three days you know so yeah i guess and specifically yeah. specifically he's directing his attention outwards but there is towards yeah, towards yeah, yeah, structured yeah. But things there is in the still, world i think you know the difference between the threat to your survival yeah. and the threat to your you know happiness slash existence versus challenges that are not of course there uh, is. that yeah high. so th yeah there, there's clearly a difference in in those things at you know the level at which we would we would talk about you know threat to your survival is clearly different from whether or not you pass an exam or whether or not you master a musical instrument or yeah, something like that feel, like you know for a lot of people but, they feel similar a lot of people will have the same physiological response to yeah, the exam but like that's you know because they, they are, are actually physically afraid of the exam yeah so again and they will sweat you know their yeah, guts will sure, melt and yeah. whatever they will feel really really unwell yeah and, so it's important but to... then you know you have people who don't hmm. hear and then you know the there is you know yeah. kind of evolutionary advantage in, in something like in a way that you don't care because that allows you to you know kind of you just 
solve things better because you're not stressed you know you're not totally. locked and you're not in, yeah. you're not in a, like some problems not all the problems sure. but some problems can be better solved if Absolutely. you're not stressed obviously yeah right? totally so stress, <coughs> stress is kind of an independent thing stress again is another marker it's like fear and pain of the need to to pay you know that kind of psychological stress yeah it's a marker yeah but the there need. is i mean i would my point is that there is a challenge if, if it challenges to your survival it will induce you know that kind of a response yeah but if a challenge is just like a challenge of like ah, you know can i climb to this tree can't i climb to this tree like yeah. it's a different kind of challenge you know clearly you're, like you're you're yeah. you're solving it in a relaxed way totally so yeah so uh, I'm not, like I'm not you're actually, not struggling, you yeah. know? You're just like, ah, it doesn't matter whether yeah. I can climb it or not, but I will still try but, to but climb you, it. But, yes, and, but you will become bored as many, yeah, many people way, do. Maybe, maybe no, no, but no. maybe not. You know, like, I would say that some people will, you know, can only solve problems when they are, you know, like, put in the position when there is no way that, you know, they don't solve it. Yeah, when sure. they have to solve it, then exactly. they will succeed. And, and then they're that. even more similar but, to those uh, life and but death I, problems. I, yeah, but I think that there is a, uh, you know, pressure uh, nowadays for people who can succeed without being pressed to that extent. Sure. That yeah. you can be like, hey, if this is a problem, you know, I have to self-motivate myself in order to solve it. There is nothing that, you know, that I don't need to solve it per se. I can live, you know, fulfilled life without doing it. And I have, you know, have money and everything without it. But it's still better if I solve it. And yeah. we see that those people are the people who bring, you know, the most for the, uh, like, cultural evolution, right? You know, so... Yeah, um, well, I don't know about the last bit. I mean, I was completely agreeing with you up to there. There are, obvi <laughs> okay. there are obviously big differences between, you know, again, a threat to your survival and whatever other kind of challenge that you want. But they are, again, if you go to a more abstract level they are related in certain ways as well. So it's hardly surprising that people get confused about the differences between them and sometimes treat things that aren't in any way, shape or form a threat to their survival in the same way as they would a threat to their survival because they're kind of related cognitively. Um, and again... Yeah, I mean, they're related they're really cognitively because they you know, take place in the same brain and brain is this yeah. you know, machine to solve things. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, kind of, yes, again. Um, they are, but they aren't. That brain was shaped by an evolutionary history in the in which the, prim yeah, the yeah, primary, primary. But I mean, you can basically you can you know tease apart the solving device and the motivating device of in your course. brain. Yes. And uh, so the solving, you know, hardware is one thing, and you need to like you know you need to have something in attention that you are solving yeah. because i think attention belongs to this you know solving machine mm. while the motivating machine is more like you know the you know the need the why are we going there why are we solving this you know why are we doing this kind of a thing and for a uh, typical animal it would make sense that for typical animal it's not engaged unless there is a pressing need to engage in for it sure. and so we as humans kind of you know have to evolve out of it yeah and, and we you know, have in many happy, ways yes you know we have in many ways of course i completely yeah. completely agree with all of that i mean that's why we have art for example amongst many other things yeah. i mean to some extent it's 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 why we do all the kinds of stuff that we do because we're trying to use this attentional resource which again in our evolutionary history would have been cuff, coupled directly to that you know 
motivational need to survive, to that motivating need to survive. And because it has become increasingly decoupled, we've had the ability to devote that attentional resource to all sorts of other kinds of stuff. You know, it was as we transcended our very basic need for survival, as life became easier because of, you know, in the first place, a surplus of, of food, perhaps, that we got more interested in doing lots of other kinds of things, in capturing our attention in other kinds of ways. And all those ways have contributed greatly to our you know cultural evolutionary history um and yes you're absolutely right that people who can move easily through the world solving problems without confusing every single problem with a threat to their very survival are going to have more they're basically going to have more energy to keep solving more problems because they're not going to be totally drained by having like this huge adrenal response and all this you know this big stress response every time they encounter a problem because they've built into themselves the, the basically an understanding of themselves as a person who can solve problems um so yeah well i mean yeah i guess i guess that but i mean many other things as well like you know you're when you're in the lock state of solving problems you don't see other solutions because you know you're only engaging in certain pathways that are associated with stress and you're only going for immediate uh you know solutions and so on for sure but yeah i guess i guess yes I guess you are right in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. Stress will will massively constrain uh, your openness. If yeah, um, yeah, and and probably just like solving, yeah, like solution seeking. Like you look at you look at the effect of cro chronic stress um, in neurodegenerative disorders, and you know that ties in very easily with this. Yeah, neurodegenerative disorders are kind of like a total breakdown ultimately of you know neuroplasticity and then the ability to learn completely breaks down and then the basic functions of the brain start to break down in a kind of you know cascade um and you therefore your ability to solve problems becomes massively compromised um and your attention you know your attention cannot be captured anymore like in a state of advanced dementia which could obviously mm. be, which can obviously be different to um a whole suite of other neurodegenerative conditions but in that case you just can't maintain um your attention basically your your attention span becomes so short um so yeah look i think i think we're completely agreeing about yeah as, as, as usual yeah as yeah. usual we completely agree <laughs> okay where enough one it may pass um, the last topic on death um, something that we have. Yeah, just, hold on, hold yeah. on. On the death, like what yeah. I wanted to say for, before, yeah. and I find it really interesting that previously in the culture we had uh, immortality as a certain some kind of a curse. So you know, person will be cursed into immortality. You know, so, like vampires yeah, will be yeah, the most yeah. prominent example. Yeah. Like you know, Cain, <clears throat> right? He's cursed to be mortal because he slaughtered Abel. Yeah. Or the you know immortal Jew. Right, he's cursed to be mortal because he didn't help Jesus. So, like being immortal is tiresome. Is like you know, yeah. just you. It's dragging, and yeah. you don't like it a lot. And but that's it, why you know you can curse somebody to be mortal, yeah. and you know they will suffer. But isn't it interesting uh, that those but, examples? But come now from we kind within... of we kind of reframe <laughs> reframe those characters, right? 
we like reframe vampires to be good we reframe immortality to be good and i think that really ties into our yeah modern uh view on life and things because yeah, now we're like well we can be happy forever we can be you know but like we can you know live forever and we can love forever basically yeah for sure. forever is our today yeah <laughs> thank you freddie um but isn't it interesting that... <laughs> I don't know, I think it was actually Brian May. Brian May who wrote that song. True, but Freddie who sung it, so... Um, sure. Um, isn't it interesting, though, that, you know, Cain and also the Wandering Jew, they come from that Judeo-Christian framework in which the idea that, you know, death, there'll be salvation and all of that, you know, you'll go to heaven, so death is not the end, it's a new beginning, and it's even better um, than life. Uh, is is very built into that tradition. So in that case, immortality might seem like a punishment because you never get to go to paradise. Um, and that's, it seems, I don't think I'm going to be able to articulate the ways in which it does, but I think it contradicts something that you were saying earlier on about how, um, you know, not being accepting of death is, you know, it has partly come out of the Judeo-Christian framework because of the afterlife. But now you're also saying that the, anti-immortality thing is a big part of that framework and obviously yeah but i mean obviously no like obviously that's a complicated issue yeah there, right? of course because, well, the whole know, thing the is whole, a complicated the whole idea of yeah. you know this world being carnal and being non-perfect yeah. like you know it kind of muddies the water here yeah but if you like we can i don't know like probably you know buddhism will be easier thing here even though i'm not sure because you know everything is freaking complicated and uh, like the fact that you know buddhism says specifically that achieving immortality you know even in terms of you know your soul perpetuating is not a wise thing to do the wise thing is to break from it yeah exactly but again there that's because life is a cycle of suffering um in in that yeah tradition. but but you can achieve um, you know immortality you can become whatever a rakshasa you can become a demon and you can become anything in Hindu mythology, and you can, you know, be very happy in your perpetual cycle of life and death. Well, you mentioned Buddhism, we obviously derive from Hinduism. Yeah, yeah, but Buddhism, but but Buddhism says that this is not a good thing. Yeah. Even, if you, even, even if you achieve that, that's still worse than being breaking free from it. So that's not necessarily on the table as far as the, the Buddhist conception of okay. breaking the cycle yeah. of suffering is concerned. I mean, that might be a moot point anyway. It's just that, you know, you kind of mix two different frameworks there. Um, Fair enough. Certainly, Fair enough. certainly... Hold on, hold on. Give me, give me three minutes. I'll be back. Okay. about you know if gautama buddha would uh, acknowledge that but i feel like you know tibetan buddhism uh is somewhere in that vein because you know in at least i understand some of their teachings and you know some of their buddhas as yeah. basically saying that you have to go through a uh, certain amount of 
reincarnations yeah. in order to see that everything that happens is the same. Yeah. Everything that goes, you know, through those the same cycles, sure. and you basically are trapped in this sameness. Yeah. And then, you know, the idea is not so much of, of uh, kind of breaking free from the suffering, it's breaking free from the sameness of this. Yeah. Um, sure. I... While, so in their mind, in their mind, and I think, you know, Buddha would agree yeah. that uh, being trapped into the sameness of life, whichever, you know, you're reincarnating or whether you're staying in the same life, is beneficial. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's separate from the issue of becoming a demon and all of that. Um, yes. Yeah, so yeah I, no, becoming a demon may that just like in, in a way that you can be immortal within one life by being a demon. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that that's basically true. I mean, there, I think there are just different ways that you can you can interpret that. I mean, certainly the idea that life is suffering um, and suffering is caused by desire and that it's very, very difficult to escape desire altogether during life. Um, and, you know, there is a kind of sameness and monotony to that cycle of, of suffering induced by desire, which is an intrinsic part of life. Yeah, I think that that's a core part of, um, of Buddhist teachings. And my, you know, limited understanding of the, the so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead, which actually I was hoping we would we would discuss um is that it's it's basically you know it's it's for living people to prepare themselves um to be in the best possible position to escape that cycle when their opportunity to do so comes around so obviously that you know the concept of having you know uh, good karma is very very crucial there but also the the practice the meditation um that you know, um, practicing the death of the ego, even though it's temporary while you're alive, when you die, um, you get that opportunity if you're ready to take it. So if you've if you've practiced enough, basically, and also if your karma is good, to achieve, um, you know, to not re-enter the cycle. So to achieve permanent ego death permanent selflessness and permanent you know pure awareness or pure consciousness or or whatever and hold on hold on there's many many things many things to address here um just as a side point i don't think that uh karma is necessarily uh a thing here because if i understand correctly you can break out like like there, there is a way basically to hijack your karma because karma is basically what makes you here in this cycle of suffering, you know, suffering and good stuff. You're constantly going through good, bad, good, bad because of your karma. Because if you if you're doing something good, that necessarily will follow that you will have something bad. Because that's kind of the idea of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like Buddhism, as I see it, was a reaction to that. It was a reaction that there is no way out of it. Like it will constantly be, you know, one will trigger another, cause and effect, cause and effect. So. I, maybe not all the Buddhism, but at least definitely some of the Buddhism allows you to kind of just, you know, getting rid of your previous karma and just getting straight to whatever, you know, outside. Um, <clears throat> but I'm not sure, like, ego death is a very interesting thing and can't, like, but so we will leave it for the last because I think it's the most interesting. Mm. Uh, can I jump in for a second? Because I, I, issue of. Hang on, uh, hang on, like, man, man, just, yeah. just stop for a sec. Because I have to address your your point on karma before you move on from that. 
So, I mean, I happen to have a translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead sitting next to me. Um, and, um, you know, not necessarily the world's most accurate translation. And, I mean, even the conception of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as we know, is is not how it was seen within those traditions and all of that. But, so, I mean, my expertise of, of, of the, the direct, you know, knowledge of the tradition is very limited. But in this version, um, it says... Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. success, as in, you know, breaking the cycle, uh, implies very unusual preparation in consciousness expansion, which is, you know, meditation practice, um, as well as much calm, compassionate game playing, brackets, good karma, on the part of the participant. Um, so, that, I mean, that's where... Yeah, I'm... but I mean, like, I don't, like, again, I can't argue with Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, but this is not necessarily Hinduistic approach to karma, because you yeah. you don't build karma for yourself in the present stage, sure. right? of course. You, yeah. I mean, there are obviously many ways of understanding yeah. what karma is, yeah. but your past life dictates your present karma, sure. and, you know, your current deeds dictate your future karma, and it's all kind of a mix together Absolutely. in this, you know... Yeah complicated net of causal relationships and the way i was understanding buddhism i mean my again my understanding of buddhism is quite limited but the way i was understanding some of it is that it allows you to break free from this net because there is there is no point at which you can be okay my karma is like you know altogether good or yeah, my yeah, karma yeah. is altogether bad no i think i think that that's very i think i believe that that's very accurate and, and that's not but it's not an exception to what I was saying in that part of, um, you know, very explicit within within Buddhism is the idea of of not increasing suffering during your own lifetime. So it's the idea that, yes, you don't have any control over your previous karma, whatever karmic debt you might have racked up, but don't rack up any more right now uh, while you do have some degree of control over it. And then that will put you in the best possible position to be able to exit the cycle of suffering if that opportunity is available to you. So I don't, I mean, again, you know, we're both kind of the blind leading the blind here, but I don't think it's, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely think that the whole idea of, of meditation practice and, and that kind of stuff is partly to, to shortcut your way out of the cycle because uh. you're, you're, you're learning how to break free of it. And then, when you die, if you've got enough of a window to get out, then you will get out. But it's yeah. in, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I'm pretty sure that they go through various discussions of not getting out as well, because you might not actually have that opportunity. But the idea is train as hard as you can in case you get that opportunity. Um, if you don't, okay. then, maybe. yeah, Any, I mean, that's, that's my current limited understanding of it, and maybe that will change. But, um, like I was, I was understanding it the way that you will always get that opportunity if you know what you what kind of to look for. And that's probably like, something that's... that differs between different traditions of Buddhism as well, because there are there are so many different um, interpretations yeah. there. Something for us, enough. something for us both to, to look into more, perhaps. Okay. The other the other comment was that uh, if again, you know. 
it's hard to say, you know, what the Buddhism tells you because yeah. it's like the same as saying what Christianity tells you, right? That tells you so many things and there are freaking Gnostics that tell you all completely yeah, yeah, different stuff. Sure. There, but, is a, there is a difference, but yeah, because you can go directly to the sutras, I suppose, and not take any... Obviously, then you'd be doing your own interpretation of it, but you don't, yeah. you don't have to, unlike... You know the, the Bible. I guess you know you could go to the Gospels. You can go to, um, you can go to the Gospels, yeah, but yeah. then you know if the way that you interpret the Gospels yeah, and yeah. they're somewhat contradictory. Whether sure. you go with you know Luke yeah, yeah, or whether yeah. you go with Mark, for sure. Whether you go with whom, you know, was it was it an angel that stands you know between uh, near the tomb or the man? So in, um, I think in in the case of of the sutras, it's a little bit different because you don't have that whole. They're not situated for the most part in the same way. They're just like transcriptions for the most part yeah. of what he said, as opposed to, um, you know, a story about, you know, the circumstances in which he said everything. Like he was telling stories for sure. But anyway, it doesn't yeah. matter. I know what you mean. And I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. But there is also like, you know, you can like, you know, any human will contradict himself over the course of, of course. their lifetime. Yeah, like I'm pretty course. sure we contradicted, you know, ourselves over the course of this conversation. A dozen times. So, you know, if you're, if there are, you know, 10, uh, transcriptions of this conversation and they you know omit a single part then they will be contradicting each other right yeah, sure. uh, so uh, but the point is uh, that i wanted to make yeah what is that um as i understand buddhism is that when you are um transcending your ego and you're becoming you know you're getting out of the cycle of reincarnation and you are connecting with the oneness you don't have consciousness experience as such you don't have awareness you don't have you merge the with the one with well, you kind are. Of the, the thing is the, it's a mentalist yeah. as opposed to physicalist it's a mentalist metaphysics so it's not that you have consciousness because what you don't have is you right there's no you yeah but what but you become I mean, no, is I'm, consciousness. Just, I'm just reacting to you saying that you will have awareness and consciousness no, hang on no no, no. sorry hang on can i can yeah. i clarify what i said yeah so maybe i didn't say it clearly enough but because it's a mentalist um metaphysics <laughs> it's not that you will have consciousness it's that you will be consciousness because consciousness is the fundamental substance so you will be, yeah so it will be fundamentally like the experience of ego death in deep meditation when you cease to exist but you are you you again you're becoming part of of the oneness yeah. um you yeah, are yeah no, that, that, that is a very i feel like, like this is a very important point especially yeah. in the lot of our conversation sure because it amounts to your death yes. like you know you yes. you will completely cease to exist yeah like you know this is kind of an absolute freedom it only gives you you know some ray of hope is that in some sense, uh, something that you are will continue to exist, right? In some way, because yeah. it will be you no know, reunite with the one which is everything. But in all the you know sense and purposes, you as the individual that with your experiences and your way of looking at things and just everything will stop to exist. Absolutely, yeah. Because there's no self. And in yeah, the, yeah. But yeah. this is this is not immortality. This is not a way to immortality. No, this is like a, no, no, no. A way to certain death. Like this is a way to permanent death. For sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, no. I completely agree. And I mean, I think that that's what I was. I think I was agreeing with you in the first place when I said that life, um, 
also known as not death, um, in that tradition is suffering um, and thus escaping that cycle of suffering um, yeah. is obviously going to be good. So you wouldn't want to be immortal in a tradition which says that, you know, life is basically suffering and, and the, high, yeah, the yeah, highest ideal like, is being dead. Because the way you phrase it didn't necessarily um, make that clear. Look, I see, yeah. I see it as basically equivalent to, you know, like an Epicurean idea. So like Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, or, or Lucretius, um, who was a follower of him, they were not so much mentalists, they were more like physicalists, but their view of death was, was essentially the same, which is like there's nothing to fear in death, all suffering. Um, and of course, they were probably influenced by, um, by Buddhism, actually. But, um, you know, all yeah, suf they could. Yeah. Su suffering is a thing of the body, basically. So it would be completely irrational to fear death because you're not it's not possible that you're going to suffer um because the body is is no more you know the body rots and of course they didn't believe in a soul or anything like that either they were they were you know fundamentally you know materialists or physicalists but they they were not afraid of death they claimed because it's it's just a not being basically um there's nothing more to it than that and yeah. su suffering is is part of being um it's a thing of the body um, so why would you fear that you're going to suffer in death? And Lucretius has that passage in in his you know his epic poem um, on nature. Um, is that what it's called? Uh, something like that. Um, on the nature of things, maybe he has the section where um, you know it's something about those who fear their body being eaten by dogs after death um, are not acknowledging the reality of death because, you know, what do you care what happens to your body when you die? You know, you're not going to, it's not going to be you, you're going to be dead. Um, <laughs> and that's the same as that, you know, Zhuangzi thing about, you know, who, who cares what, why are you worried if, if we don't bury your body and, and, you know, birds eat it, if we bury it, ants are going to eat it. What's the difference? <laughs> you know? yeah. So that's, that's, and I love how, you know, I think that those, you know, Buddhism, Buddhist metaphysics and, say, Epicurean metaphysics, um, you know, seem to be in some sense diametrically opposed. Or in the history of philosophy, we think of, quote unquote, mentalism and, quote unquote, physicalism as being somehow totally different. But to me, they're actually exactly the same thing, um, which is and they have exactly the same treatment of death, which is death is just a not being. Um, you know, you go back and become part of the great whole because they're both they're both monist monistic traditions. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, you yes, know, yeah, I I love that that coherence, uh, as I might term yeah, as if you wouldn't. <laughs> um, okay, very last, really quick thing is that you know one one time we were talking about death and you said that you thought death would be the most interesting thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, I still stand by that. I still stand by that. I think it will be the most interesting experience in my life. So I, and what I was sort of saying at the time is that, you know, I can imagine scenarios in which it would be interesting and they would be influenced by, you know, my meditative experiences and my experiences of psychedelics and things like that. And, you know, you, you can obviously think of the, um, 
Timothy Leary um, version of, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is called The Psychedelic Experience. And, you know, not coincidentally, that book, um, you know, the translation of Tibetan Book of the Dead was given to Timothy Leary by Aldous Huxley, who, of course, famously, you know, his last words were written and they were, you know, X amount of LSD intramuscular yeah. or whatever, you know. So he, he, he went out on a high kind of literally. So I, th I think it, it could be interesting in that way. But what I was also, I was giving you a bit of pushback and just saying like it could also be profoundly banal. You know, like if I told you about that experience I had, you know, walking across a street and I've had similar experiences multiple times, but this was a particularly, you know, vivid experience where, I, you know, I looked to see if there were any cars coming. I could see a garbage truck you know, 30 or maybe 50 meters up the road. It wasn't moving very fast. So I turned my back on it and crossed the road. And as I, turned, <laughs> as I turned my back on it and could no longer see it, even though I was totally safe and my judgment that it wasn't going to hit me was completely accurate, I had this sudden sensation of, of being hit kind of thing. You know, no pain or anything like that, but like a shock as though the thing had hit me and then the lights just went out. Um, and, and what I was struck by, and of course this is just a you know, subjective experience, it doesn't really mean anything about the reality of death, but what I was struck by was how insignificant that kind of death would be to me, whereas you know, Genevieve, my wife, my parents, um, you know, people who love me, maybe even you, um, my death, even me, but not, but not me. then because we didn't know each other back then, but, but for those people that loved me, um, it would be a far more significant event than it was for me. I mean, obviously, I was yeah, just... but it will be you know like for uh, for us, it will be the experience of you know day life. It's the same experience in terms of its quality that we deal on everyday basis. It's of the same spectrum. While the experience of death is unique, right? You can't have multiple death experiences, and you can only have that one. You know and I don't think, like, regardless of how your lives go out, I yeah. still think that, you know, you will have some sort of conscious experience or unconscious yeah, yeah, experience. Yeah. Basically, you will have some sort of experience. The experience the experience of your, uh, you know, like, not organism, but of your brain shutting down. Have and you that had... experience will be unlike everything else you had experienced. Okay, maybe. But have you ever taken, um, well, okay, have you ever been knocked out very suddenly or have you ever taken, um, you know, more tranquilizers than you should have? <laughs> yeah, you are not only taking more tranquilizers, but knocked out. Yeah. So, so you can be. But then you, you know, you you can reflect on that experience after. Yes, and then, but you know, I like. I don't think that you know what you feel is mm. what you then later reflect on. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I just don't know. I mean, I can imagine, because, yeah, I mean, you know, being... You know, like, maybe you can probably, you know, be incinerated in a second, or yeah. you know, and there is no way for your impulses to pass by. Well, no, and, you don't you know, need to be incinerated, you just need to be hit in the head, such that yeah. you're knocked out, and, the, you know, the experience of being knocked out is like, I just lost a few seconds, or however long it was, you know, yeah. like, they're just yeah, yeah. gone. Well, it feels like you've lost a um, few seconds. So yes, you, you can... It you feels can... like you wait. Yeah. You could be suddenly knocked out and simply not regain consciousness. I mean, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah, you know that, that it, it definitely can be that, obviously. And you also, know, there is. I mean, I can't, I can't argue with that. I just, it's more like you know, in this case, I would say it's more like my belief yeah, that yeah, which it is can, totally, it yeah. will be interesting I rather think, than you yeah. know the facts. Because sure. like 
I guess, you know, I can compare it to dreams, right? When yeah. you are in the middle of the dream yeah. and you like dreams are interesting, then you're waking up and you have no idea what you've yeah. been dreaming. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. So in it this also... case, you know, when you've been knocked out, maybe you had some, you know, way of yeah. some, something. Right. You perceived something. But yeah. when you reboot, you like reboot, right? But when you're in the middle of resetting, I mean, I would use computer like you know yeah. metaphor. When your computer is stuck, something's happening there. But, I but think when that... you reboot it, that process is gone. Yeah, I mean, this isn't what I wanted to say because I wanted to say one, I guess, final thing or put one final thing out for you to react to. But in response to what you've just said, you know, neuroimaging can to some extent shed light on this, and we do know that there are you know, periods of greatly reduced brain activity or, or no brain activity, basically, um, you know, no higher brain activity, like people in comas and things like that. And, um, and, and there's no experience we can quite easily infer. There's no experience associated. Like the person reports no experience if they do wake up and the, the, the brain imaging shows no activity in any of the areas that have ever been associated with experience. And so, I mean, the, the kind of the most logical um, interpretation of that, just like it's like the logical interpretation of being knocked out, is that there is no, associate, no experience associated with that because for some, for some period of time, whatever circuitry is involved in actually having experiences is just off. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But, I mean, like, in, in, in the light of that, I will, like, yeah, I have to agree that, yes, it cannot, it necessarily won't be. Yeah. Uh, so I, I also it, agree that it could be. It's interesting, as I know, I envision it to yeah, be. Yeah. However, however, you know, there is this question that, you know, we as humanity have. And that question is whether there is something after death or not. Sure. And we all believe in different things, you know. Sure. Some believe that there is nothing. Some believe that yeah. there is something. Some believe that there is a particular flur of something, yeah. right? But we, as far as we know, as far as our knowledge goes, we have no idea. Yeah. I mean, we can only believe one way or another. For sure. And so, as far as I'm concerned, this is the only way for me personally to know out. whether there is something or not. Yeah, and that I makes don't think it... there is much there. Yeah. Like, even if there is, I don't yeah. think there is much there. Probably there is just nothing. But... Yeah, I mean, you, you can certainly well, me say... personally, this is the only way to find out. Sure. So and you think that that no makes way, it intrinsically interesting. There is no way I would like to live forever. I might yeah. be like to live for 6,000 years yeah. or whatever, 7 billion years, but <laughs> I would definitely like to end this lifetime at a certain point in order to finally figure out whether there is yeah. something after it or not. But doesn't, again, this is still like, this one final thing that I want to say, but, but doesn't it um, pre, uh, presuppose an ability to find something interesting for it to be interesting? So people always say, well, you know, I don't know what happens after we die, but I guess we're going to find out. But maybe there isn't going to be a you to find out, you know? Yeah, I mean, so and that'll you, be an answer. That'll be like hmm, yeah, but okay, it won't be that. yeah, but it won't be an interesting answer because there won't be a you to find yeah, it interesting. It will, well, hold um, on, it's not like yes, it will be interesting <laughs> in a way. Like I mean, it's the absence of answer. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, yeah I, I know. Nice. I know what you mean. We could go around on that point for ages, but um, I also think the the idea that it will be interesting, and again, I I believe that it could be. But do you feel that that somehow also presupposes a level of awareness? And I guess this is kind of what we've been talking about. But I mean, on a level, I don't in this case just mean an on-off level of awareness. I mean that you're not 
on like crazy amounts of analgesic meditation, uh, meditation, medication, or that you are, you know, that you don't have seriously advanced Alzheimer's or something like that. Because again, you can easily die. You can imagine dying in a situation where your brain is so completely addled by, um, you know, disease or by drugs that you're kind of not equipped to notice it happening and then it's over. But I don't think the, you know, I don't think conscious experience is what's, uh, what, what, what's the key here. The experience in general is what's interesting here. It's not so much your, uh, my ability to reflect or to, you know, be aware of that experience mm. happening. It's more like the thing itself should, can, not, not should, but in theory can be, unlike everything else I've ever experienced. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I guess use of the term interesting um, is just an artifact of the of the fact it's, that yeah, you're it, currently it, it, of away, the language. You know? It's more like yeah. you know, if yeah. I were to analyze that experience, yeah. you know, before or after, yeah. I would find it interesting. Sure, sure, more sure. like this. Not that it will actually it's not so be much, interesting. It's more like I will actually find it interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's more like if I were to you know somehow map it or image it and then compare it to the rest of my experience, that experience will stand out. For sure. All right. Good place to end. Nice.